Welcome to the Lindsay Hadley Podcast Show. I'm coming to you from the North Shore of Oahu, where weekly I interview some of the world's most inspiring people from business, philanthropy, and entertainment. I love collecting humans, and these are some of my favorites I've found along the way. This podcast is brought to us by Capita Financial Network. Do you need help with the next steps of your financial plan? Think Capita. Capita is a financial network built around you. They have a team of financial advisors, CPAs, estate attorneys, Medicare providers, and social security experts to help you accomplish your financial goals. Call or schedule a complimentary consultation at 801-566-5058 or visit their website at capitafinancialnetwork.com. You can also check out their financial education podcast, The Financial Call, available on Apple, Google, Spotify, and YouTube. Hi, Sydney. Welcome to our show. We have Sid- Sydney Tetro, who's the CEO of, of Brandless, here on our show today. And you like to go by Sid, is that right? Uh, that's what most people call me. Oh my gosh. Well, Sid, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm so excited to have you on as just a fearless female leader to share a little about your your incredible background and what you're doing currently as in your new position. So Sid, do you mind sharing with our audience your story? I'm so excited for them to hear from you. Yeah, Absolutely. You know, I kind of view myself as um, a technologist, but kind of a storytelling technologist. I have um, spent my entire career in technology, my undergrads in computer science, and I've really had these themes in my career of how do you drive innovation, how do you like tell stories and acquire customers, and how do you become about something with a higher purpose that's mission-based. And so, you know, today I'm the CEO of Brandless which is a wellness platform that's very much focused on the better for you aspects of products um, and technology underneath it. Um, prior to Brandless, and I've been, I've been running Brandless for about two and a half years, and it's been a phenomenal opportunity. We, not only do we have an amazing team, we've acquired six companies during that time, and we've seen phenomenal growth inside of the organization, which is just really cool. And even in today's kind of economic uncertainty, we've been able to have a lot of great success. Um, prior to this, I spent um, a couple of years building another company in the digital storytelling space that we eventually sold to a holding company in the summer of 2020. I spent about six years at Disney, um, heading up technology, basically building technology businesses inside of Imagineering that crossed the entire Disney um, ecosystem. Um, I also, when I actually left Disney, we started a company where we could make you Iron Man. So we built a system they would scan your face and you could become a 3D printed action figure. And we partnered with Marvel and Star Wars and took those all over the country into the retail ecosystem. Um, and then I spent some time on the B2B side. Um, and along the way, you know, one of the other initiatives that I've done that's kind of a thread through my entire career too is I started the Women Tech Council, really focused on how do we increase the number of women in tech. So my career has really been at that epicenter of technology and storytelling and being mission-based. That's so impressive, Sid. And from my understanding, you just did the fir- the largest Series A investment round for a company that a female's ever led. Is that correct? In the Silicon Slopes of Utah. Yeah. So when we raised, we did a $182 million raise, which is, is and we did it about 18 months ago. And it's the largest fundraise by a, a female-led company um, in Silicon Slopes. I will just qualify that and say, I want that record to be shattered by many, many other people. Um, and it's one that needs to be in order for us to continue to fuel women into those leadership um, positions and building the, the next unicorns. Incredible. Sid. So you, are you originally from Utah? I've been in Utah a long time. So I was originally born in Chicago, um, but I've lived here um, for a really long time. And even when I worked for Disney, I was based out of Salt Lake City. 
I was just going to ask that. Were you there in California or where were you headquartered? Um, that's amazing. So you, having grown up in Utah, I also am originally from Utah. And uh, as a principal in my company, as a female, often as a C-suite executive in most positions and most situations I've been in and board member and things like that, it's very, it's very common in Utah to be the only woman. It's changing though. And I'm curious, like, what do you think you've seen? And I mean, your efforts are amazing with the Women's Tech Council, like trying to encourage, especially in tech. I actually did launch my own tech company years ago, which by the way, was a very expensive education. We, we weren't successful, <laughs> but, but you know, we, we learned a lot. And I, I mean, what was amazing was just, I often was like the only woman. And I remember feeling, you know, a little isolated and it's changing so rapidly. And um, Capita Financial Network, where I now work, which is I'm the director of client relations and the sponsor of this podcast, we've deeply invested in women. We're doing all kinds of gatherings and experiences, retreats, um, events, and building an ecosystem of a community of essentially the good old girls club. I mean, we've got the good old boys club already well established, yep. especially in the world of finance, right? And so I'm curious, like, what was it you saw that was like the impetus for that change? And what were the things you've seen that have really worked? And how have you seen that shape over the course of your career? You know, if, you, if I look over the last 20 years, it, we have made a lot of progress. We still have a long way to go. You know, I think one of the stats that continues to hold us back is we still only have 5% of executives in tech that are women. That number is probably still my most concerning number. Now, the landscape looks completely different. We have many more women on boards. We have a lot more women going into those executive positions. And I really think the impetus for change has been intention and a focus on the fact that when you have diverse teams with diverse talent around the table, that those are those companies and teams are performing better. So it's good business sense. You need all of the talent with diverse thinking. It's what makes us come up with great ideas. It's what makes us, allows our businesses to be successful. So that's just a baseline. And I think tech has really led the way in just expecting that that's what the business dynamics right. should look like. Yes. Now there's a lot of complications still because the pipeline Right, we have fewer women going into say tech careers. We have fewer women who end up in management. We have a broken rung problem in early stage management. And then we only have so many executives. So we have to have a very concerted effort to continue to move that in order to make sure the pipeline is full for women in executive positions, all the way into board seats, and then all the way into starting their own companies. Because you need that liquidity for women. You need women in those senior roles so that the generational wealth goes into their hands, which then fuels the next generations. It's, it's just such a critical factor. And I think we still have a lot of work to do at, to move women up those ranks faster in order to change the dynamics that come because of those decisions. I mean, it's so, Sid, it's so cool to have this conversation with you because you're not just a woman in a leadership position in, as a CEO in, in, a, in a company that is growing rapidly. You're not just a woman that has been disrupting in tech in, I mean, of all places, Disney, the most imagineering, magical place to be. But you actually have set this record and you're saying like, look, I, you know, I've done the most that any woman's done so far. And I, like you said, I want to encourage more, but it's interesting. I, I, uh, I, I, I'm a behavioral science major from my degree and I, I kind of geek out on statistics and as we look at the multivariate analysis for the economic disparity around women, it's actually quite more complicated than just gender uh, bias. Um, you know, and that's that's been a very important thing, a nuance that the general public doesn't know. You, whatever your political persuasion is, I'm a political moderate. You know, looking at 
the facts instead of correlation or emotion or whatever, you know, is really important. And what I've understood from all the research, it's pretty definitive. It's about nine, just under nine, probably in some places a little higher, up to 10% of the contributions for women having a, a pay gap and the gender pay gap is actually gender bias. Most often it's actually the types of fields that women choose um, that the, 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 the ability that, you know, their ability to negotiate, like women tend to be more agreeable and you can ask whether that's nurture versus nature. I think it's probably a combination of both socialized, you know, for thousands of years, women were developed where we were, we couldn't in a fist fight and brawl win. So to be agreeable and use fawning in flight or fight situations paid off for us in tribal and communal dynamics and, and, and dynastic exchange, you know, so that makes a lot of sense. Um, but as women uh, are more interested statistically in people and not things and things scale and things pay better than, than for example, teachers and nurses and social workers and nonprofit workers, you know, the stuff that we see women tend to lean towards by choice. Um, it's really a lot more complicated than it is just uh just that hey there's a bunch of you know misogyny happening although that's, that's right. also there and it's like you want to sure. address those things but if you don't look at the holistic issue that a lot of women tend to be more relationally driven than career oriented or a lot of women tend to have i mean in my in my personal opinion a better sense about what's more important in life and pour into caregiving of children and parents and other things over external outcomes of achievement or whatever, you know? So when you take the totality of what's on deck, that's causing these outcomes, uh, you know, I think it's important, but I'd love your thoughts on any of that. Yeah. I mean, I think you're, you're spot on, right? It's easy to always lump like ev all the problem into one bucket, but it's yeah. not right. We, you, you aptly just pointed out when you look at tech, women and girls have not chosen that field. And that field pays 139% of average, right? So mm -hmm. when you look at things like that do influence pay gaps, well, if it's so, so few of the population, we've got 50% of the population that works that are women, right? right? And when they don't proportionally choose the same types of jobs, then the distribution of that pay gap gets wider. What we've learned, so we have a program called SheTech. It's had about 30,000 high school girls go into the program. And what the young women tell us is that the reason that they haven't chosen technology careers is because they don't know any women in tech. So you think about these complex problems, a lot of it is I can't become what I don't see, right? I don't, and so in those situations where you have girls who are making career decisions, they see other people in other careers that are allowing them to do the things like balance life and all the other things that they're weighing, and they don't see that they can actually have both of those in other careers. So they avoid them and they don't go into them, which then in turn just continues the dynamic that's at play. And what we find is we give them role models and we give them mentors, it changes their perception of who they can become and starts to change the pipeline. And I think that's generally true at all stages. The way you create more rapid change is you put people in positions of influence. You put people in positions to accelerate the, the changing dynamics for those people who are coming next so that you can more, more rapidly accelerate them. But I couldn't agree more. It is very complex. There is not one solution. And you almost feel like at every stage of a talent pipeline, you have to address the components right. in order to create change. And I think that the greatest kind of challenge that we all face is how do you make it go faster? If I look at our current trajectory, it's going to take us like 50 or 60 years wow. in order to make the change that we want to see. 
We can't allow that to happen. So then it makes you reflect on, well, what are the impetuses for change that if we implement now could make it much more rapid for all women in order to allow them to move in? I mean, for the first time ever, we have more than 10% women in Fortune 500 companies. That's never happened before. Mm. Well, yeah. that's also a big statement about change that's happening, but acceleration that's also necessary. Yes. And what do you think are those levers? And what have you, what have you found out Sid, to has worked in your efforts um, as, a, as a leader that employs women, but also running coalitions like the Women's Tech Council. I mean, you're, you're literally figuring this out as you go, I'm sure, in many instances. But what are kind of the tried and true, like when you apply these things as a corporate leader, when you speak about this, you know, what are kind of some great hacks or ways that people can be like, this is a tried and true way to increase diversity in leadership? Yeah, I mean, that too is a very complex question, right? So without giving an answer to every part of it, because so much of it is ingrained in culture, right? <laughs> what those organizations are doing. Um, but I would say that at the very core thing is organizations have to be intentional around wanting the change and then make being willing to make sure that the stacks and the parts of the organization are aligned with allowing that to happen. And I generally think two things start to create acceleration. One is... You have to be willing, which is a total culture shift, to make career promotions and pathways be less traditional and faster. Hmm. So let's say in the traditional path, it was always taking someone like 15 years to get to an executive position or 20 years. Well, what would happen if we allowed people and gave them pathways that brought their skills up to speed faster so that condensed to seven years hmm. or condensed to five years or we put them on accelerated paths? Well, what does that mean? That means that people get really intentional around introducing people faster to skills and opportunities and rooms that they might not have gotten in before and allowing people with untraditional backgrounds to also have the same pathways as people who might come from traditional ones. Because that's another big dynamic at play. Some companies are very structured on what your education needs to be, what those positions mean. But that creates some limiting factors for people who come from different backgrounds or different dynamics. Mm. And so what we've seen is in companies who are willing to embrace those two things, acceleration faster for opportunity and also the career support that is necessary and then giving people more opportunities for stretch assignments. If you put more women in boardrooms, even just to learn, they become better able to do their own jobs and then they move faster into the to, to the C-suite. And those things become super critical to us changing the numbers. Amazing, Sid. So when you when you were out doing this is that's so helpful and such concrete insights. Um, when you were out doing your your raise, um, did you find there was any challenges? Uh, was this your first time doing a raise of that size um, for again a brand that's maybe a little bit in a different industry than what you've been in? I mean, what challenges did you kind of face? How did that all go? You know, that's a great question. So first of all, I will say two things. Raising capital is always extremely hard, right? No matter who you mm -hmm. are, raising capital is tough because it's a numbers game along the right. way, right? And you won't figure, you won't meet everyone's theses, you won't like thesis, you won't put everything in the, in the same buckets. But what I would say is I've always found that raising capital is a, as a woman is harder. Mm -hmm. And um, that is, I haven't seen that change. And I actually haven't seen that change for any of my, my friends. Now, more capital has gone to women. That's a good thing. But I wouldn't say that raising it is easier. And I think there's a couple of dynamics at play that I that I often think about. So one of them is, um, you know, everyone listens to the pitches. 
but deals are mostly done by relationships. You actually mentioned this early on, um, creating the, you know, kind of the women's network, right? Mm -hmm. Across Mm -hmm. the board. Well, what exists in fundraising are a bunch of very well-connected men who have done lots of deals with each other and who have a trust ecosystem to know how to vet deals and how to work together. There are very few women in that dynamic. And there are very few women with the relationship strength that exists for your male counterparts in those ecosystems. And so because of that, we have this other dynamic at play when you go to raise money. You go to raise money, um, oftentimes, I mean, people who invest in you, they have to believe in you. And they have to have um, credibility and they have to have had vetting of who you are, what your performance is, and other, that's how all of, all deals are done that way, right? Like if I've got to do a deal mm. with you, I gotta, I'm betting on you and I've got to fully believe you and I've got to believe that there's a network of people around you. Women don't have those same networks because they haven't existed historically and because there's fewer women in those seats that are raising capital. Wow. And so when we think about how that whole dynamic has to play, like the whole thing has to rise earlier and we actually have to find work more creative ways to get those networks and trust in place so that more women get the capital coming to them and flowing in the same ways that it's flowing to our male counterparts. So it wasn't easier. I've never found it. I'll, you know, I wish I could answer the question that it was easier this time than my previous times, but it's not. Mm. Wow. Sydney, this is, that was so incredibly succinct and helpful to me because what you really nailed down for me, which I I think I've experienced it, so I know what you're talking about viscerally, but you just said it so so concisely. It's a speed of trust of of relationship and the disparity in relationship because they have women haven't been at the table. So I, you're absolutely right. Like all of the outcomes I've ever had in business when it comes to raising money for either private sector opportunities or philanthropic, because my background's in social impact. It was relationship. Like at the end of the day, they're they're basically giving you a vote of confidence. They're saying, hey, I believe and trust in you. And this just goes to makes me think so much more about what we're doing at Capitalist so critical. But I also was just sitting there where there are men in so many positions of power. There needs to be a transfer of trust equity onto women. And that's got that has to be something that they value and care about. Um how are and you- I actually and I think it almost requires this different way to think about it. Like yeah. the same way the trust networks might have been built built for men, they might not be need they can't be built the same way. Mm. And so it always makes me step back and think about like, okay, yeah, so you know, after a meeting, I hear the story all the time where people go in and they have great fundraising pitch meetings from some of my male counterparts that are raising money. And they're like, after the call, we'll get a call from the investor guys and they're like, oh my gosh, hey, we've got a couple of tickets to the basketball game. Do you want to join us tonight for the game? And yeah. so then they go to the game and that's really where the deal's done. So now they heard your pitch, yeah. they believe in you, the deal's done in a different way. Well, it doesn't equally translate all the time for that same call and invitation. And so right. therefore the deals can't progress as fast. Oh, and wow. so how do we start yeah. to think about those relationships? Well, we have to change like the way that we can create more trust and more um, strength in those relationships so that the deals accelerate for women at the same pace. Oh, Cindy, that is so helpful because as I'm sitting here thinking a lot of these men, I think about the founder at Capita, Mike Littledyke, he's amazing. And he's married to one of my dearest friends, Brittany, who's incredible. She, they, she trusts Mike. Mike has great boundaries professionally. There's nothing to work, but like, he's not going to invite a 
a, a single woman to a, a basketball game with he has one seat next to him that, you know, that looks bad professionally. It's not appropriate. Like there's all kinds of, he, you know, puts these retreats on with men all the time, takes them on his private jet. They stay overnight at his, at his ranch and they go shooting and hunting and fishing or whatever it may be. He can't invite a bunch of women. He's a married man. They're married women, whatever they're single, whatever the dynamics. And especially in a world where we're addressing so much of the, the, you know, me too movement and inappropriate situations. No man want, no man wants to be seen as making certain passes or their intentions. So that's a scary position for them to be in when they can't do that. So you're, you're making great points. It can't be done the same way. So how can they, think differently. It's like, it's invite your partner or you and a friend or you and your, you know, like, but then that, again, it doesn't allow the same. But then it changes the dynamics. It doesn't allow the same speed. Yeah. It yep. doesn't allow just, just be, Hey, we're talking business. We're going deep. It's exactly. really insightful. So what can we do with regards to that? Again, you're, you're, they've got to think more creatively. They've got to think in a different way. What do you recommend? And have you had men that you kind of want to put up as examples or doing it really well that you can share with us? Yeah. So great questions. I wish I had the right answer. This has been like on the top of my mind over the last year um, because it weighs so heavily on me, not only because I'm fundraising, because I sit on boards of other women and I'm watching other women fundraise and I'm hearing these stories. I've been really deeply thinking about what is the right way to change it. It's You just pointed it exactly out. It's very complex. Right, like mm. you, because what you need is this one-on-one relationship, right? It's the conversation that we're having, and it's those conversations that happen, you know, as mm. you're like driving to a ball game yes. or as you're sitting in those seats that are, are very fluid. They're not set up just for the straight mm-hmm. business context because you already had that meeting, and now you've got to build this relationship. I do not have an answer. I haven't been able mm-hmm. to find a situation that works perfectly because all the other ones um, do what you like. What you just said, which is like, oh, do you invite someone else? It doesn't, and this is the entire point mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. what we're trying to accomplish mm-hmm. along the way. So I don't have a great answer, and I'm really open for anyone who helps us like solve this problem because <laughs> it's very, very complex along the way. I would say one of the things that I have seen make a tremendous difference, and I've experienced this at a number of critical junctures in my career, which is wherein there have been men that, who have positions in power and very strong networks, and they're willing to take that and transfer it to me and put then therefore me in the situation where it gives me that automatic credibility because of the Mm -hmm. association with you. And it's not just an intro. It can't just be a call that's like, hey, take this meeting. It has to require something more than that. It requires Mm -hmm. whatever that environment construct is in order to truly transfer that credibility and that support. And I've had that happen a number of times. I had it happen early in my career before I was fundraising um, I worked for a guy named Darren Lee, and he was tremendous at mm-hmm. allowing me to rapidly accelerate in my career um, and really not just being an ally, but like fully endorsing my capabilities and then putting me in the room when he was in the room and giving me the platform to lead out on whatever those situations were. He was the very first person early in my career that I started fundraising with, and he was willing to give me that platform. Like I remember being in one room where we went to pitch. And the person that we were pitching thought I was the secretary. And Mm. he was the one who helped realign that conversation. Mm. And you need those people in that room. And and then I would say at Brandless, we talked about this a second ago, um, Brandless is uh, our major investor is Clark Capital. And James Clark owns Clark Capital. And James has also done a phenomenal job Mm. about taking his relationships and his network 
and adding those to mine and helping lift that so that we could accelerate fundraising. Mm. And he's been very intentional about that. And I think it's made a tremendous difference in our ability to raise capital and the ability for that network that is mine and his to be able to expand more rapidly in order to get that. But I think it requires things like that. It's not easy and it's not passive and it's not mm -hmm. just an intro. It has to be much deeper than that in order to transfer those relationships. Wow. This is such a powerful conversation that we're having, Sid. And I'm sure you have it often. I mean, you've been recognized as woman of the year, CEO of the year, top 10 coolest entrepreneurs. I mean, you've had awards and accolades signaling kind of your thought leadership and, and you as an icon, I guess, it, today. And I'm so grateful for that legend because I know that does have a trust equity transfer to a lot of women. And But I think that this conversation is so important because as I think I'm sitting here just feeling swollen with gratitude in that my mentors, I've had only male mentors in my career and like meeting a, a lady like you right now, I'm currently, I have a new female mentor, kind of the first I've ever had in my career um, in a really uh, tangible way. I've had lots of women I look up to or have relationships with, but I haven't had that, that mentor-mentee relationship. But uh, so Cassie Myers, who's the COO at Capita and one of the partners and like has been the only female executive in our company and one of the only female executives in Utah and finance. And she's just incredible. And I've learned so much from her, you know, and I just have total, you know, swoon level crush on your career. I'm looking at what you're accomplishing. It's so great. But what's so crazy is I'm sitting there thinking the men, because I've had several male mentors who have really poured into me and done what you described. Not only am I grateful for them, but I'm sitting there feeling so grateful for their wives. Like all of their wives have been so generous in spirit and trusting the relationship and trusting me. And that puts them in a vulnerable position. And I want to, I don't think I've ever taken into account what a gift that's been to me, that they would be okay that I'm on a, on a trip with just the, on a road trip with just the, their husband. And they're okay that we're doing like business, whatever, or we're traveling internationally or whatever. And they, you know, um, that is just such a generosity of spirit, such a kindness. And obviously, like you said, it's complicated. There are situations where you do need to have incredible vigilance and, and as a couple and use your discretion. But it just makes me feel grateful because I think about all the value that has come to me because of these other women who are just by virtue of trusting me and their husband's have have enabled so much uh, headway. I'm so grateful. So it makes me think of Andrea Clark and how generous she is with with her relationships with James too. But um, that's amazing. So so Sid, when you're looking at what you're doing for Brandless, tell us. You just acquired six companies. What is the big vision? What are you trying to do? I mean, you're we're in the middle of this crazy recession when e-commerce is just tanking. I mean, this is an interesting time to be where you are. What are your kind of your big hopes and dreams? What keeps you up at night? What are you trying to accomplish here? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And I mean, we couldn't have predicted the last couple of years, right? And the constant changing climate that sits around us. So when I look at Brandless, we have this really cool opportunity. I mean, Brandless is, you know, you, you think about it as almost like this anti-brand, but what's cool about that and what we're building is we think about Brandless as the platform of people because we really believe today that people are the platform and that people are advocating for the brands and things that we love. So as we've acquired those brands, that's how we think about them. They're coming into this brandless platform and they are great brands, but that people have both built and created and that people love. And so we're building this brandless platform that's all about things that are better for you, like in your home, on your body, in your body and around your home. So we've been really focused on that. And then we've been really focused on 
how do you help people become the platform for great products like the ones we have and other products that are better for you? And one, we have we, we took the philosophy of how would we drive growth by how do we become a great acceleration engine for everything that's part of the brandless platform? And how do we find brands that align with our mission? And so we've brought those, those brands and those creators in and we're doing amazing things with them. But I think one of the things that's allowed us to grow um, despite what's happening in the this like environment of economic uncertainty is we took a philosophy of two things. One is bolster, don't break. When you partner with great entrepreneurs, they are doing something amazing if they're growing. And our number one stewardship should be to make sure they can continue to do that while we add in acceleration in areas that they have yet been able to focus. And so we took last year, as we started seeing like the economic climate start to have um, some issues, we stepped back and we said, what are the things that we need to focus on in order to really help our brands kind of survive as we go through these next times and, and even thrive? What's that going to be? And we really felt like as we've come through this pandemic, a couple of things happened. One is customer loyalty shifted. Mm. So customers need yes. products and so they buy them wherever they can. And then the other thing that changed is five years ago, we would all talk about, here's an Amazon brand, here's a direct-to-consumer brand, here's a brand in retail. But that's no longer true because loyalty shifted. Your products have to be where customers expect to find them. Right. And so we leaned very heavily into what that meant from a channel strategy. And so as we have companies in the consumer space, what other channels should we add to them that would really strengthen them? And that has been a really powerful formula for growth because it allows us to, if you see any variation in any of the channels, you have other channels that are compensating for that or that are growing. And so this, this focus on channel mix has really led to a very strong portfolio and platform for growth as we've stayed really close to what the economics need to be in, in those businesses. Plus, I think we've just had these great brands that sit in the like kind of daily routine mm -hmm. side of what people want. We're not in premium, we're not in discount, but we're in things that people mm -hmm. view as vital for what they do every day. And I think the combination of those has allowed us to create not only a great brand, but also perform really well during a very trying time wow. in the economic environment. That's so smart. That strategy resonates. I could see why you were so successful in fundraising. Because I'm like, that just sounds, as my mentor would say, dumb smart. Like common sense is not always common practice, right? So when you talk right. about it, it feels so intuitive and and just resonates, um, which is really profound. Sometimes people, we take for granted the things that are just so obvious and inherent, you know? So well, and there, and there, even though they're obvious, they're also sometimes hard, right? Yes. Like infrastructure of a company isn't set up for that, or we don't have the right resources. Like there's so much complexity, even in the execution. Because at the end of the day, yes. that's the strategy and how it maps into, can you execute day to day? Yes. Yes. So it's like the, you have to have the right thinking, the right thoughts, the right premise. And then do you actually have the caliber of talent to execute upon those things. Exactly. It's really, it's really so true. So I'm so, okay, I'm sure you're not supposed to have a favorite, but do you have a brand or product that you're just like really excited about right now that you think like, wow, this is going to be like one of our, you know, darlings uh, in the next quarter, the next year? What's something you really want to share and maybe promote to our audience? Yeah, totally. So I have a couple of things that I totally love. Um, and there's many things in the portfolio, but two that I'm always like, oh, it's so amazing. So one of the companies we acquired, it's a company called Ambrosia. And we have this product called Planta, which is a plant-based protein. So forever, protein has been, you know, in the wayside. And it's um, and because plant-based protein is super hard to flavor. So we have 
like serious, like everyone, no one, like you can't fully believe it until you taste it. But on the plant-based protein, like our top selling flavor is banana maple syrup. Oh, and sounds amazing. <laughs> it is like by, it's amazing. It seriously is amazing. Um, and right behind that one is the candy bar and then like strawberry ice cream. And so what I love about the product is we have figured out how to create amazing flavors of a product that is better for you and that's mm. plant-based and mm -hmm. that's just like crushing it. So I I actually just love that fact that it does that. We actually have one great. of the one of the guys in the office. I'm always like, Adam, you're in charge of helping make sure like can we make like really great smoothies whenever anyone comes in so that they can see like how amazing this is because he's so great good at idea. It. That's a great <laughs> idea. So we do that all the time. But I love that product. And then the other product that I love is um, another company we acquired. It's called Sutera, and they have these diet. We have these diatomaceous bath stone mats. So it's diatomaceous. It's made out of diatomaceous earth, which means it like immediately soaks up water and eliminates any of the bacteria. So if you put the mat outside of your shower, the moment you step on it, the water evaporates, like the, the water is soaked in. And so what I love about that is it's just such like an earth sourced clean product that just is uniquely different and works in any of those environments. So those are two of my like current favorite things that we have. Sid, that's really cool. What was the name of the math bat? So the bath mat is bath under mat? a company called Sutera, S-U-T-U-R-A. And it's, yeah, they're the, they're called bath mats, but they're made out of diatomaceous earth. Okay. I got to check that out because I live here in Hawaii and the, this we're constantly in and out of the water and the ocean and the exactly. you know, sand and we're every day. And I'm always like, oh, these, I, it's annoying, the bath mat situation. So okay. I'm, I got you. I'll send I, you. I, I can't wait. This is so exciting. So Sid, where, I mean, we'd love to have you be involved in our Capita events. We've got one coming up. I'd love to, you know, offline talk to you about some of them because, you know, I know you're a very busy woman, but what the, what we really hope that comes out of it is relationships with other women that we've curated a lot of high net worth women, high caliber, high capacity and high character women. And they're, they're essentially all sharing, like, you know, um, Cassie said this the other day on a call, but she said, when I was sitting, you know, we take a bunch of women on a private chat, we go for adventures. That's really fun and bougie and all that stuff. But as we're going, as we're going on a trip, she looked over on the plane and two women were sharing their e-commerce business and saying, Oh, don't use that agency. Use this one. I, you mm -hmm. know, whatever. And we're like, it's working, you know, they're sharing insights and right. information and relationships, all that relationship stuff. And what's cool is as we get more women empowered, they'll be able to do the, Hey, come to the one-on-one -on -one exactly. event with me and without any, um, without any concerns. And so I think what you're trying to do is really aligned with that. Do you guys as a brand, how do you, um, currently, this is probably the, you know, something that is very specific to Utah, but we have like the highest per capita women influencers from what I understand, like mm -hmm. the mommy blogger, the stay home mom, social media star. And, you know, how have you seen with all your brands? Cause your stuff is very, that demographic, that market it's women making decisions to put, put something on their body and in their body and in their home. Um, yep. How do you decide to engage influencers today? And this is not be a really long conversation, but on touching on base, there's a like affiliate marketing, which makes perfect sense. It's performance based. Mm -hmm. But then a lot of brands have been throwing money at influencers and not seeing a dollar back. And having, having been a part of a creative agency for philanthropy, we tried this. And it felt like an absolute shot in the dark. Like you'd have someone that you would think they've got a million followers. Of course, they'll have huge conversions, zero conversions. And someone with 10,000 would just kill it for you. And there was yep. really difficult to figure out when and where and how that would actually work. 
Um, some of it over time, I realized they have to have a real fan base that really like resonates. That this is like what they're following for. But at the end of the day, even that you would just be like a hit and miss. Have you found that with your, and have you worked with influencers for your brands? Yes, um, absolutely. So I think there's a couple things that we know. One is, and I'll kind of give you two kind of thoughts. In the influencer world, the way we start to think about them is you have influencers who are education-driven and influencers who are entertainment-driven. And the influencers on the entertainment side, we uh, we consistently, and I'll, these are like broad conversion stats, so they're not always true. But on the entertainment side, we tend to see far less conversion than we see on people who have come up through both education and selling products. So we tend to start to categorize influencers because when you need influencers for your brand, you either you have two objectives you're trying to go after. One is, are you trying to go for brand building, which you know you can't track conversion stats, but maybe you need the exposure. And the second one is conversion. But most of the world today, or at least to the world of an e-commerce brand, you are always thinking of conversion. So how does what I'm doing not only align with this person, but align with their channel, and can then they help us close? And not all influencers are equal. Like when you find an influencer who has 10,000 followers and they convert, it's because they understand how to talk about how a product is differentiated, how it aligns with Mm, their market and the benefit that it's giving. And you have to have that in order to drive conversion. And the influencers who know their audience well and know what they can bring to their audience and what their audience expects from them, those are the ones that we've been able to be successful with. So it's interesting. It's actually the same principle. I think for a long time, influencers has been this kind of bigger bucket of like, everyone needs influencers, go get lots of them, they'll drive yeah. conversion. Yeah. But you have to apply the same science of marketing into that arena. Who are my target customer? How are they going to talk about it? Do they get benefit? Because people still, while they're getting mm. trust from the influencer, they're still converting in the same way. Like, oh, that's a product that fits a need that I have. Oh, that's something that would be beneficial to me. Oh, you're using that product? Awesome, because it relates to me. And it can't be out of bounds. And so we're actually seeing even influencers today saying, you know what? Those are not the types of products like, like not in our case, but in many cases, they'll say like, we only sell these types of products or we can't do this one or we don't build those relationships. And so I think you see both sides of the market evolving. Now, in some of our brands, we have very strong influencers who are part of that. And what we try to do where we real, where we have the influencer strength is really align them with the business and being part of the business and the growth of that business so that we're economically incented to achieve the same mm. thing. Because mm. everything in the world is about alignment on incentives. Yes. Everything. Yes. Right? So if we're aligned on incentives, whatever those incentives are, then we execute in the same common path. So that's what you need out of your influencers is to be aligned in what benefits they need, how they continue to grow their audience, and what will help you. And so I think we're going to continue to see this massive shift in the influence market of being able to categorize them, being able to align products with the right types of influencers, and then being then being able to leverage. But there are many influencers who have such amazing content but cannot convert product sales. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so finding your balance when you're introducing a brand is very interesting. And it's a learning process, I think, for everyone to figure out which influencers work for which brands. And I think you're both learning on both sides. And I think that will just continue to get more mature as we have more channels like TikTok and others that are becoming really the predominant way people are finding out about things. That's really helpful insights. Wow. I can see why they made you in charge. (laughs) I was going to say, so you're, so, you know, you have all of these brands going and and Brandless sits over as an umbrella company, did, and they did each of these companies that you've acquired keep their brand identity, or did they become Brandless and now you're selling their product? 
they be, they keep their identity. So okay. we keep their brand. So Brandless is really becoming the the brand of the people. And then yeah. those and then you know they become brandless brands that we create this halo effect for the platform for the overarching cool. platform of brandless. Very cool. So Sid, do you what do you do in your position or, or what are your thoughts and strategy around corporate social responsibility as an umbrella company to all these? Do you pick you know, philanthropic initiatives and causes that you align with. I mean, there's a big conversation about cause marketing and a lot of your products have in their face a value add, like for example, plant-based protein. I mean, that's um, protecting animal rights and, you know, health. And so you have these intrinsic values on their face in your products, but do you partner and align with charitable causes? And are you looking to kind of build like an overarching strategy with so many different products or do you do something in each vertical and what are your kind of purview plans for all of that? Yeah, that's a great question. So we, th I think about it in kind of two ways from a company execution. One is you know, things that the company's doing and then the other is how our employees are showing up for things that they care about. And you also mentioned like the product tier, which is what are just like the core product values that we have in the products. So we care about the stack of all three of those what's happening in the products. And all of our products end up in different continuums, but we're really intentional around like the plant-based protein. How are we doing things that are better for you? Um, how are we making decisions around sensible sustainability so we still have the right economic equation for consumers, but we're also making a difference in whatever that right way is, whether it's product ingredients or a packaging or, or go to market. So we've got that as a core foundation. Then from a corporate perspective, we think all of the time about what are things that align with both products and our values that we can be helping. So for us, that showed up in a number of ways, just a couple of examples. When um, the Afghan refugees were all coming in about a year and a half ago, they were coming in and it happens that Utah took a ton of the refugees in and they were landing in the airport and they literally had nothing. But we happen to have lots of products that are really, that are really important and essential for people. So we created bags for everyone who landed where they could have all the personal essentials they needed, shampoo, conditioner, soap, anything wow. that they needed to take care of themselves. Or some, many of them came with babies and we had a whole baby product line. So we also said, great, here's diapers and wipes wow. and lotion, like those things that you need. So we try to find opportunities. We don't look at it and say, let's have one thing for the year. We look yeah. at it and say, what are the places that we can serve? When the war in Ukraine happened, we happen to have a ton of organic pads and tampons. Wow. And so we sent containers of those on medical flights over to help the people there. Wow. And actually on Saturday, I think we're helping um, with the next round of building a home for Habitat for Humanity. So we try to see the things that are happening. We actually have a partnership with the Convoy of Hope, which supports a ton of the homeless shelters around the country. Hmm. And we have a large donation that's currently going into them to help provide those personal essentials to those because it aligns with our product, it aligns with what we care about, and it allows us to show up and really support the types of things we care. So we are always looking for those opportunities. We do them very consistently. And then we also created an initiative for our employees where things that they care about, they can also use donations of our products or other tools inside of the company to be able to support the things that are personally important to them. Because I think it's important to not only align with things we think at the corporate value, but where our people are showing up in their individual communities, in places that they care. And we want them to have tools to be able to help service those environments also. Oh, gosh. Sid, thank you so much for doing that. And to all of your shareholders and board members and employees for showing up this way in our communities. I hope you guys are telling that story well. I know there's like 
reticence to like show what the good you're doing because you're not doing it for that reason. But it also, I, I'm kind of shameless about like talk about the good because it in, good inspires good. You know, when Bill Gates started the giving pledge where he got other ultra high net worth people to say, I'm going to give 50% of my wealth away. It's, it's contagious. It's infectious. Like yeah, as long point. as you know, you know, like it's funny because as long as you know why you're doing it, if you really are doing it because it's the right thing to do, then sharing it, if, if it's look at me rather like let's market a cause, not cause marketing, right? Like it's, right. let's market a cause. So tell the story of the refugees that need help to encourage others to give. It's less about look at us helping. It's more, these guys need help. We're in, are you in, you know, like exactly. it's That's a different a posture, Wait. you know? Yep. So I think I'm, I hope you're telling those stories because so many people can follow in your footsteps. And, you know, I, I know for me, I've been super involved in both both of those calamities, the Afghan refugee situation, my, me and my family personally were deeply involved in helping bring out families and very involved in trying to address, you know, some of the stuff in the Ukraine because of the nature of my work. I've spent my whole career in the social good space. And when things come up, they come up and you just got to show up the way you can, whatever capacity you can. It's what love dictates. But I think it's very, um, amazing to me to see that it, at leadership that that those core values trickle down so this is kind of like a little shift because i know we're kind of right at the end of our um, interview which thank you again for coming on the show oh thanks you're for just me. you're such a delight i'm so thrilled to have met you um but i feel like you know to be in the leadership position you are to pre- persevere through your career to take the kind of risk to innovate in whether it's you know making turning people into avengers with 3d printing or whether it's uh pursuing such an audacious goal with your dreams of brandless what are the core principles that guide you or what is your why like maybe that's a really esoteric big question but maybe what are some of the things that like get you up every morning that when you have a horrible exchange with someone or have to fire someone or falling out with a business partner or a giant failure these moments where you're like on your knees you know begging to be out of the suffering that is honestly the cost of being a leader I think most people don't realize the unbelievable quiet suffering. They see all of the, you know, awards and the money and the right. articles and you're on the board and the financial compensation, but they don't understand what you give up in your life to lead. And any good leader I know leads from an other centric position, the best leaders, the most sustainable leaders, the leaders over time that actually see the most beauty. They really have, um, love behind their hearts but what is it what is it that drives you and like what's a little bit of where that comes from because I know it's not a small feat yeah well I you're saying that list of things I'm like oh yeah those are all true right like all of those all of those things exist for anyone I think in in their career right you've experienced all those hardships and it's easy to only see the good I think for me there's a couple things that I just I just like believe at my core and one of those one of those that drives a lot of what I do is that I believe that we have a responsibility with our talents to be able to make the world better. And that in doing so, it is also our responsibility to be an influence for good and open doors and pathways for all the other people around us. Sometimes it doesn't come with an economic return and it doesn't matter, but it is what we're supposed to do. Like we are here on this earth to help other people and whatever place that we've been put into, it is our job to help other people become successful. 
and for them to make an impact and a difference in the world. And for me, that also translates into, it's the same thing I want for my kids, right? I want my children to be in a world that's better than the world that I have and also to be an influence for good and also to use the talents that they have to help both the world and their families and their community become better. And I think they learn that by an example that they have in in what I can accomplish and what they get exposed to. And so the combination of those two have really been a strong balance for me. There have been many times in my career where it's like, I can't take that job because it doesn't allow me to balance all the things that are important to me, including my family. And so I've felt many times where I'm like, mm, do you know what? I probably took a hit on compensation or a financial return yes. because I'm not willing to go do that thing because yes. my priorities are just different. And for me, the the balance of those two things are the things I still feel like every day I'm still balancing those things. <laughs> yes. Like how do I do, you know, what I'm supposed to with the talents that I have and how am I doing the things that are right for my family? Oh, amazing. So you're a mother, you have kids? We have, th yeah, I have three kids. Amazing. What ages are they, Sid? So my kids are getting a little older. I have a son who's 21. He's in college. He plays uh, soccer in college. And then I have a high school son and a junior high daughter. Oh my gosh, so fun. You're just ahead of me in that curve. My oldest is 15. But yeah, those kids, I mean, they deserve medals too for all that they sacrifice when they have totally. a, a working mom too. And, but they, but you, they, they gain such gifts. A lot of people don't realize like the, oh, the unbelievable totally. gifts they gain and not only watching and seeing their mom do what she's doing and, and use her gifts the way you're describing, but also the resilience, the the ability to help, their intuitiveness of like, because it's like a family system, really. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah, I just see my boys, they're so incredibly agile and their ability, they're, they have a, a real grit to them because of all that they've had to navigate with the way that we've moved forward as a family. So anyway, said it's been a lovely uh, pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much for being here. And thank you for all you're doing for women and women in leadership. And good luck with all of the future endeavors that you're that you're pursuing right now. Thanks again. Oh, well, thank you. Th seriously, thanks for having me. And thanks for everything you're doing to elevate women too. It's so critical that we have all, that all of us are working together to make a difference. So thank you. Oh, incredible. Thank you. Do you need help with the next steps for your financial plan? Think Capita. Capita is a financial network built around you. They have a team of financial advisors, CPAs, estate attorneys, Medicare providers, and social security experts to help you accomplish your financial goals. Call to schedule a complimentary consultation at 801-566-5058 or visit their website at www.capitafinancialnetwork.com. You can also check out their financial education podcast, The Financial Call, available on Apple, Google, Spotify, and YouTube.